Chapter 9 of The Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter 9 Submarine Boats. The introduction of torpedoes for use against an enemy's ships below the waterline has led by natural stages to the evolution of a vessel which may approach unsuspected, close enough to the object of attack to discharge its missile effectively. Before the searchlight was adopted, a night surprise gave due concealment to small craft, but now that the gloom of midnight can be in an instant flooded with the brilliance of day, a more subtle mode of attack becomes necessary. Hence the genesis of the submarine or submersible boat, so constructed as to disappear beneath the sea at a safe distance from the doomed ship, when its torpedoes has been sped to retrace its invisible course until outside the radius of destruction. To this end, many so-called submarine boats have been invented and experimented with during recent years. The idea is an ancient one, revived indeed as are the large proportion of our boasted modern discoveries. Aristotle describes a vessel of this kind, a diving bell rather than a boat, however, used in the siege of Tyre more than 2,000 years ago, and also refers to the divers being provided with an air tube, like the trunk of an elephant, by means of which they drew a fresh supply of air from above the surface, a contrivance adopted in more than one of our modern submarines. Alexander the Great is said to have employed divers in warfare. Pliny speaks of an ingenious diving apparatus, and Bacon refers to air tubes used by divers. We even find traces of weapons of offense being employed. Calivius is credited with the invention of a submarine gun for projecting Greek fire. The Bishop of Uppsala in the 16th century gives a somewhat elaborate description of certain leather skiffs or boats used to scuttle ships by attacking them from beneath, two of which he claims to have personally examined. In 1629, we read that the Barbary Corsairs fixed submarine torpedoes to the enemy's keel by means of divers. As early as 1579, an English gunner named William Bourne, patented a submarine boat of his own invention fitted with leather joints, so contrived as to be made smaller or larger by the action of screws, ballasted with water, and having an air pipe as mast. The Campbell Ash submarine, tried in 1885, was on much the same principle. Cornelius van Drebbel, an ingenious Dutchman who settled in England before 1600, produced certain submersible vessels and obtained for them the patronage of two kings. He claimed to have discovered a means of reoxygenating the foul air and so enabling his craft to remain a long time below water. Whether this was done by chemical treatment, compressed air, or by surface tubes, no record remains. Drebbel's success was such that he was allowed to experiment on the Thames and James I, accompanied on one of his sub-aquatic journeys. In 1626, Charles I gave him an order 
to make boats to go under water, as well as water mines, water petards, etc., presumably for the campaign against France, but we do not hear of these weapons of destruction being actually used upon this occasion. These early craft seem to have been generally moved by oars working in air-tight leather sockets, but one constructed at Rotterdam in about 1654 was furnished with a paddle wheel. Coming now nearer to our own times, we find that an American called Bushnell had a like inspiration in 1773, when he invented his famous turtles, small upright boats in which one man could sit, submerge himself by means of leather bottles with the mouths projecting outside, propel himself with a small set of oars, and steer with an elementary rudder. An unsuccessful attempt was made to blow up the English fleet with one of these turtles carrying a torpedo, but the current proved too strong and the missile exploded at a harmless distance, the operator being finally rescued from an unpremeditated sea trip. Bushnell was the author of the removable safety keel, now uniformly adopted. Soon afterwards, another New Englander took up the running. Fulton, one of the cleverest and least appreciated engineers of the early years of the 19th century, his Nautilus, built in the French dockyards, was in many respects the pattern for our own modern submarines. The cigar-shaped copper hull, supported by iron ribs, was 24 feet 4 inches long, with a greatest diameter of 7 feet. Propulsion came from a wheel, rotated by a hand winch in the center of the stern. Forward was a small conning tower, and the boat was steered by a rudder. There was a detachable keel below, and fitted into grooves on the top were a collapsible mast and sail for use on the surface of the water. An anchor was also carried externally. In spite of the imperfect materials at his disposal, Fulton had much success. At Brest, he took a crew of three men 25 feet down, and on another day blew up an old hulk. In the Seine, two men went down for 20 minutes and steered back to their starting point underwater. He also put in air at high pressure and remained submerged for hours. But France, England, and his own country in turn rejected his invention, and completely discouraged, he bent his energies to designing boat engines instead. In 1821, Captain Johnson, also an American, made a submersible vessel 100 feet long, designed to fetch Napoleon from St. Helena, traveling for the most part on the surface. The expedition never came off. Two later inventions by Castera and Payenne in 1827 and 1846, respectively, were intended for more peaceful objects. Being furnished with diving chambers, the occupants could retrieve things from the bottom of the sea, Castera providing his boat with an air tube to the surface. Bauer, another inventor, lived for some years in England under the patronage of Prince Albert, who supplied him with the funds for his experiments. With Brunel's help, he built a vessel, which was indiscreetly modified by the naval authorities and finally sank and drowned its crew. Going then to Russia, he constructed sundry submarines for the Navy, but was in the end thrown over and, like Fulton, had to turn himself to other employment. The fact is that up to this period, 
the cry for a practical submarine to use in warfare had not yet arisen, or these inventions would have met with a far different reception. Within the last half century, all has changed. America and France now rival each other in construction, while the other nations of Europe look on with intelligent interest and make their contributions towards solving the problem of underwave propulsion. America led the way during the Civil War blockades in 1864, when the Housatonic was sunk in Charleston Harbor and damage done to other ships. But these experimental torpedo boats were clumsy contrivances compared with their modern successors, for they could only carry their destructive weapon at the end of a spar projecting from the bows, to be exploded upon contact with the obstacle and probably involve the aggressor in a common ruin. So nothing more was done till the perfecting of the Whitehead torpedo, see dirigible torpedoes, gave the required impetus to fresh enterprise. France, experimenting in the same direction, produced in 1889 Goubet's submarine, patent of a private investor who has also been patronized by other navies. These are very small boats, the first 16 and a half feet long, carrying a crew of two or three men. Goubet number no. 2, built in 1899, is 26 and one quarter feet long, composed of several layers of gunmetal united by strong screw bolts, and so able to resist the very great pressure. They are egg or spindle shaped, supplied with compressed air, able to sink and rise by rearrangement of water ballast. Reservoirs in the hull are gradually filled for submersion with water, which is easily expelled when it is desired to rise again. If this system goes wrong, a false keel of 3,600 weight can be detached and the boat springs up to the surface. The propulsive force is electricity, which works the diving screw at the rear, and the automobile torpedo is discharged from its tube by compressed air. By the aid of an optical tube, which a pneumatic telescope apparatus enables the operator to thrust above the surface and pull down in a moment, the captain of the Goubet can, when near the surface, see what is going on around him. This telescope has a system of prisms and lenses which cause the image of the sea surface to be deflected down to the eye of the observer below. Fresh air for the crew is provided by reservoirs of oxygen, and accumulations of foul air can be expelled by means of a small pump. Enough fresh air can be compressed into the reservoirs to last the crew for a week or more. The gymnote laid down in 1898 is more than double the size of the Goubet. It is cigar-shaped, 29 feet long by 6 feet diameter, with a displacement of 30 tons. The motive power is also electricity stored in accumulators for use during submersion, and the speed expected, but not realized, was to be 10 knots. Five years later, this type was improved upon in the Gustave Zede, the largest submarine ever yet designed. This boat, built of phosphor bronze with a single screw, measures 131 feet in length and has a displacement of 266 tons. She can contain a crew of nine officers and men carries three torpedoes, though with one torpedo tube instead of two, has a lightly armored conning tower, 
and is said to give a surface speed of 13 knots and to make 8 knots when submerged. At a trial of her powers, made in the presence of Monsieur Lacroix, Minister of Marine, she affixed an unloaded torpedo to the battleship Magenta and got away unobserved. The whole performance of the boat on that occasion was declared to be most successful, but its cost proved excessive considering the small radius of action obtainable and a smaller vessel of the same type, the Morse, 118 by 9 feet, is now the official size for that particular class. In 1896, a competition was held and won by the submersible Narval of Monsieur Leboeuf, a craft shaped much like the ordinary torpedo boat. On the surface or awash, the Narval works by means of a brule engine burning fuel oil to heat its boilers, but when submerged for attack with funnel shut down, is driven by electric accumulators. She displaces 100-odd tons and is provided with four Dizwiki torpedo tubes. Her radius of action, steaming awash, is calculated at some 250 miles, or 70 miles when proceeding underwater at five knots an hour. This is the parent of another class of boats designed for offensive tactics, while the Morse type is adapted chiefly for coast and harbor defense. The French Navy includes altogether 30 submarine craft, although several of these are only projected at present, and none have yet been put to practical tests of actual warfare, the torpedoes used in experimenting being, of course, blank. Meanwhile, in America, experiments have also been proceeding since 1887, when Mr. Holland of New York produced the vessel that bears his name. This, considerably modified, has now been adopted as model by our Navy Department, which is building some half-dozen on very similar lines. Though it is not easy to get any definite particulars concerning French submarines, Americans are less reticent, and we have graphic accounts of the Holland and her offspring from those who have visited her. These vessels, though cigar-shaped like most others, in some respects resemble the narval, being intended for long runs on the surface when they burn oil in a four-cylinder gasoline engine of 160 horsepower. Underwater, they are propelled by electric waterproof motor of 70 horsepower and proceed at a pace of seven knots. There is a superstructure for deck with a funnel for the engine and a small conning tower protected by four-inch armor. The armament carried comprises five 18-inch whitehead torpedoes, 11 feet 8 inches long. 120 tons is the displacement, including tank capacity for 850 gallons of gasoline. The full length is 63 feet 4 inches, with a beam of 11 feet 9 inches. The original Holland boat is thus described by an adventurous correspondent who took a trip in her. The Holland is 53 feet long, and its widest part is 10 and a quarter feet in diameter. It has a displacement of 74 tons, and what is called a reserve buoyancy of 2 and one half tons, 
which tends to make it come to the surface. The frames of the boat are exact circles of steel. They are set a little more than a foot apart. They diminish gradually in diameter from the center of the boat to the bow and stern. On the top of the boat, a flat superstructure is built to afford a walking platform, and under this are spaces for exhaust pipes and for the external outfit of the boat, such as ropes and a small anchor. The steel plates which cover the frame are from one-half to three-eighths of an inch in thickness. From what may be called the center of the boat, a turret extends upwards through the superstructure for about 18 inches. It is two feet in diameter and is the only means of entrance to the boat. It is the place from which the boat is operated. At the stern is an ordinary three-bladed propeller and an ordinary rudder, and in addition there are two horizontal rudders, diving rudders they are called, which look like the feet of a duck spread out behind as it swims along the water. From the bow, two-thirds of the way to the stern, there is flooring, beneath which are the storage batteries, the tank for the gasoline, and the tanks which are filled with water for submerging. In the last one-third of the boat, the flooring drops away, and the space is occupied by the propelling machinery. There are about a dozen openings in the boat, the chief being three Kingston valves, by means of which the submerging tanks are filled or emptied. Others admit water to pressure gauges, which regulate or show the depth of the vessel under water. There are twelve deadlights in the top and sides of the craft. To remain under water, the boat must be kept in motion, unless an anchor is used. It can be steered to the surface by the diving rudders, or sent flying to the top through emptying the storage tanks. If it strikes bottom or gets stuck in the mud, it can blow itself loose by means of compressed air. It cannot be sunk unless pierced above the flooring. It has a speed capacity of from 8 to 10 knots, either on the surface or underwater. It can go 1,500 miles on the surface without renewing its supply of gasoline. It can go fully 40 knots underwater without coming to the surface and there's enough compressed air in the tanks to supply a crew with fresh air for 30 hours, if the air is not used for any other purpose, such as emptying the submerging tanks, it can dive to a depth of 20 feet in 8 seconds. The interior is packed with machinery. As you climb down the turret, you are confronted at once. There is a diminutive compass, which must be avoided carefully by the feet, a pressure gauge is directly in front of the operator's eye as he stands in position. There are speaking tubes to various parts of the boat and a signal bell to the engine room. As the operator's hands hang by his sides, he touches a wheel on the port side by turning which he steers the little vessel and one on the starboard side by turning which he controls the diving machinery. After the top is clamped down, the operator can look out through plate glass windows, about one inch wide and three inches long, which encircle the turret. So long as the boat is running on the surface, these are valuable, giving a complete view of the surroundings if the water is smooth. After the boat goes beneath the surface, these windows are useless. It is impossible to see through the water. 
Steering must be done by compass, until recently considered an impossible task in a submarine boat. A tiny electric light in the turret shows the operator the direction in which he is going and reveals the markings of the depth gauges. If the boat should pass under an object such as a ship, a perceptible shadow would be noticed through the deadlights, but that is all. The ability to see fishes swimming about in the water is a pleasant fiction. The only clear space in the body of the boat is directly in front of the bench on which the man in the turret is standing. It is where the 18-inch torpedo tube and the 8 and 5-8 inch aerial gun are loaded. Along the sides of this open space are six compressed air tanks containing 30 cubic feet of air at a pressure of 2,000 pounds to a square inch. Nearby is a smaller tank containing 3 cubic feet of air at 50 pounds pressure. A still smaller tank contains 2 cubic feet of air at 10 pounds pressure. These smaller tanks supply the compressed air, which, with the smokeless powder, is used in discharging the projectiles from the boat. Directly behind the turret, up against the roof on the port side, is the little engine by which the vessel is steered. It is worked by compressed air. Fastened to the roof on the starboard side is the driving engine, with discs that look as large as dinner plates stood on end. These discs are diaphragms, on which the water pressure exerts an influence, counteracting certain springs which are set to keep the diving rudders at a given pitch, and thus ensuring an immersion of an exact depth during a run. At one side is a cubic steel box, the air compressor, and directly in the center of this part of the boat is a long pendulum, just as there is in the ordinary torpedo, which by swinging backwards and forwards as the boat dives and rises, checks a tendency to go down too far or to come up at too sharp an angle. On the floor are the levers which, when raised and moved in certain directions, fill or empty the submerging tanks. On every hand are valves and wheels and pipes, in such apparent confusion as to turn a layman's head. There are also pumps in the boat, a ventilating apparatus, and a sounding contrivance, by means of which the channel is picked out when running under water. This sounding contrivance consists of a heavy weight attached to a piano wire passing from a reel out through a stuffing box in the bottom. There are also valves, which release fresh air to the crew. Although in ordinary runs from one half to one hour this is not necessary, the fresh air received from the various exhausts in the boat being sufficient to apply all necessities in that length of time. Another submersible of somewhat different design is the production of the Swedish inventor Mr. Nordenfelt. The boat is nine and a half meters in length and has a displacement of 60 tons. Like the Goubet, it sinks only in a horizontal position, while the Holland plunges downward at a slight angle. On the surface, a steam engine of 100 horsepower propels it, and when the funnel is closed down and the vessel submerges itself, the screws are still driven by superheated steam from the large reservoir of water boiling at high pressure, which maintains a constant supply. Three circulation pumps keeping this in touch with the boiler. 
The plunge is accomplished by means of two protected screws, and when they cease to move, the reserve buoyancy of the boat brings it back to the surface. It is steered by a rudder, which a pendulum regulates. The most modern of these boats is of English manufacture, built at Barrow, and tried in Southampton water. The vessels hitherto described should be termed submersible rather than submarine, as they are designed to usually proceed on the surface and submerge themselves only for action when in the sight of the enemy. American ingenuity has produced an absolutely unique craft to which the name submarine may with real appropriateness be applied for sinking in water 100 feet deep it can remain below and run upon three wheels along the bottom of the sea this is the argonaut invented by mr simon lake of baltimore and its main portion consists of a steel framework of cylindrical form which is surmounted by a flat hollow steel deck during submersion the deck is filled with water and thus saved from being crushed by outside pressure when moving on the surface it has the appearance of an ordinary ship with its two light masts a small conning tower on which is the steering wheel bowsprit ventilators a derrick suction pump and two anchors a gasoline engine of special design is used for both surface and submerged cruising under ordinary circumstances but in time of war storage batteries are available an electric dynamo supplies light to the whole interior including a four thousand candle power searchlight in the extreme bow which illuminates the pathway while under water on the boat being stopped and given the order to submerge the crew first throw out sounding lines to make sure of the depth then they close down the external openings and retreat into the boat through the conning tower within which the helmsman takes his stand continuing to steer as easily as when outside the valves which fill the deck and submersion tanks are opened and the argonaut drops gently to the floor of the ocean the two apparent masts are in reality three inch iron pipes which rise thirty feet or more above the deck and so long as no greater depth is attained they supply the occupants with fresh air and let exhausted gases escape, but close automatically when the water reaches their top. Once upon the bottom of the sea, this versatile submarine begins its journey as a tricycle. It is furnished with a driving wheel on either side, each of which is six and one-half feet in diameter and weighs 5,000 pounds, and is guided by a third wheel weighing 2,000 pounds journaled in the rudder. On a hard bottom or against a strong tide, the wheels are most effective owing to their weight, but in passing through soft sand or mud, the screw propeller pushes the boat along, the driving wheels running loose. In this way she can travel through even waist-deep mud, the screw working more strongly than on the surface because it has such a weight of water to help it, and she moves more easily uphill. In construction, the Argonaut is shaped something like a huge cigar, her strong steel frames spaced 20 inches apart being clad with steel plates 3 eighths inch thick, double riveted over them. Great strength is necessary to resist the pressure of the superincumbent water, 
which at a depth of 100 feet amounts to 44 pounds per square inch. Originally, she was built 36 feet long, but was subsequently lengthened by some 20-odd feet and has 9 feet of beam. She weighs 57 tons when submerged. A false section of keel, 4,000 pounds in weight, can on emergency be instantly released from inside, and two downhaul weights, each of 1,000 pounds, are used as an extra precaution for safety when sinking in deep water. The interior is divided into various compartments, the living quarters consisting of the cabin, galley, operating chamber, and engine room. There is also a division containing stores and telephone, the intermediate and the diver's room. The operating room contains the levers, hand wheels, and other mechanism by which the boat movements are governed. A water gauge shows her exact depth below the surface. A dial on either side indicates any inclination from horizontal. Certain levers open valves which admit water to the ballast tanks in the hold. Another releases the false keel. There's a cyclometer to register the wheel traveling, and other gauges mark the pressure of steam, speed of engines, etc. A compass in the conning tower enables the navigator to steer a true course, whether above or below the surface. This conning tower, only six feet high, rises above the center of the living quarters it is of steel with small windows in the upper part encircling it to about three-quarters of its height is a reservoir for gasoline which feeds into a smaller tank within the boat for consumption the compressed air is stored in two mannesman steel reservoirs which have been tested to a pressure of four thousand pounds per square inch this renews the air supply for the crew when the Argonaut is long below and also enables the diving operations to be carried on. The maximum speed at which the Argonaut travels submerged is five knots an hour, and when she has arrived at her destination, say a sunken coal steamer, the working party pass into the intermediate chamber, whose airtight doors are then closed. A current of compressed air is then turned on until the air is equal in pressure to that in the diver's room. The doors of this close over India rubber to be air and water tight. One communicates with the intermediate. The other is a trap which opens downward into the sea. Through three windows in the prow, those remaining in the room can watch operations outside within a radius varying according to the clearness of the water. The divers assume their suits to the helmets of which a telephone is attached, so arranged that they are able to talk to each other as well as to those in the boat. They are also provided with electric lamps and a brilliant flood of light streams upon them from the bows of the vessel. The derrick can be used with ease underwater and the powerful suction pump will retrieve coal from a submerged vessel into a barge above at the rate of 60 tons per hour. It will thus be seen how valuable a boat of this kind may be for salvage operations as well as for surveying the bottom of harbors, river mouths, sea coasts, and so on. In wartime it can lay or examine submarine mines for harbor defense, 
or if employed offensively, can enter the enemy's harbor with no chance of detection and there destroy his mines or blow up his ships with perfect impunity. To return the Argonaut to the surface is only necessary to force compressed air into the space below the deck and the four tanks in the hold. Her buoyancy being thus gradually restored, she rises slowly and steadily till she is again afloat upon the water and steams for land. We have now glanced briefly at some of the most interesting attempts out of many dozens to produce a practical submarine vessel in bygone days, and have inquired more closely into the construction of several modern designs. Among these, the Holland has received special attention, as that is the model adopted by our Admiralty, and our own new boats only differ in detail from their American prototype. But before quitting this subject, it will be well to consider what is required from the navigating engineer and how far present invention has supplied the demand. The perfect submarine of fiction was introduced by Jules Verne, whose Nautilus remains a masterpiece of scientific imagination. This marvelous vessel plowed the seas with equal power and safety, whether on the surface or deeply sunk beneath the waves, bearing the pressure of many atmospheres. It would rest upon the ocean floor while its inmates, clad in diving suits, issued forth to stroll amid aquatic forests and scale marine mountains. It gathered fabulous treasures from pearl beds and sunken galleons, and could ram and sink an offending ship a thousand times its size without dinting or loosening a plate on its own hull. No weather deflected its compass, no movement disturbed its equilibrium. Its crew followed peacefully and cheerfully in their spacious cabins a daily round of duties which electric power and automatic gear reduced to a minimum, save for the misadventure of a shortened air supply when exploring the polar pack and the clash of human passions, Captain Nemo's guests would have voyaged in a floating paradise. Compare this entrancing creation, the most practical vessels of actual experiment. They are a small, blind craft, groping their way perilously when below the surface, the steel and electrical machinery sadly interfering with any trustworthy working of their compass, and the best form of periscope hitherto introduced forming a very imperfect substitute for ordinary vision. Their speed, never very fast upon the surface, is reduced by submersion to that of the oldest and slowest gunboats. Their radius of action is also circumscribed, that is, they cannot carry supplies sufficient to go a long distance, deal with a hostile fleet, and then return to headquarters without replenishment. Furthermore, there arise the nice questions of buoyancy combined with stability when afloat, of sinking quickly out of sight, and of keeping a correct balance under water. The equilibrium of such small vessels navigating between the surface and the bottom is extremely sensitive. Even the movements to and fro of the crew are enough to imperil them. To meet this difficulty, the big water ballast tanks, engines, and accumulators are necessarily arranged at the bottom of the hull, and a pendulum working a helm automatically is introduced to keep it longitudinally stable. 
to sink the boat which is done by changing the angle of the propeller in the goubet and some others and by means of horizontal rudders and vanes in the nordenfeld and holland it must first be accurately balanced bow and stern exactly in trim then the boat must be put into precise equilibrium with the water that is must weigh just the amount of water displaced for this its specific gravity must be nearly the same as that of the water whether salt or fresh and a small accident might upset all calculations collision even with a large fish could destroy the steering gear and a dent in the side would also tend to plunge it at once to destruction did it escape these dangers and succeed in steering an accurate course to its goal we have up to now little practical proof that the mere act of discharging its torpedo though the weight of the missile is intended to be automatically replaced immediately as it drops from the tube may not suffice to send the vessel either to the bottom or the top of the sea in the latter case it would be within danger zone of its alarmed enemy and at his mercy its slow speed even if uninjured leaving it little chance of successful flight but whatever the final result one thing is certain that untried as it is the possible contingency of a submarine attack is likely to shake the morale of an aggressive fleet when the first submarine torpedo boat goes into action says mr holland she will bring us face to face with a most perplexing problem ever met in warfare she will present the unique spectacle when used in attack of a weapon against which there is no defense you can send nothing against the submarine boat not even itself you cannot see underwater hence you cannot fight underwater hence you cannot defend yourself against an attack underwater except by running away this inventor is however an enthusiast about the future awaiting the submarine as a social factor his boat has been tested by long voyages on and below water with complete success the argonaut also upon one occasion traveled a thousand miles with five persons and proved herself habitable seaworthy and under perfect control mr holland confidently anticipates in the near future a channel service of submerged boats run by automatic steering gear upon cables stretched from coast to coast and eloquently sums up its advantages the passage would always be practicable for ordinary interruptions such as fog and storms cannot affect the sea depths an even temperature would prevail summer and winter the well-warmed and lighted boats also being free from smoke and spray no nauseating smells would proceed from the evenly working electric engines no motion cause seasickness no collision be apprehended as each line would run on its own cable and as its own specified depth a telephone keeping it in communication with shore in like manner a service might be plied over lake bottoms or across the bed of wide rivers whose surface is bound in ice such is the submarine boat as hitherto conceived for peace or war a daring project for the coming generation 
to justify. End of chapter 9. Submarine Boats. Recording by Tom Mack. Tucson, Arizona.